Hey, everybody, and we're back with a new episode of Hallway Chat. It's Bijan. I'm Nabil. And I'm joined by Brian Watson. Hello, world. <laughs> he's not only a member of the Hallway Chat, but more importantly, he's a new member of the team at Spark. We're all excited. Hey, Brian, you want to do a quick intro? Yeah, of course. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. So I'm Brian. I joined Spark about three weeks ago now, which is pretty crazy to think. And based here in the Bay Area, I worked at Union Square Ventures for a while and then did a little bit of operating, worked at Visco as a product manager, and then at Apple as a product manager, working on a couple of cool products there. And now I'm at Spark. It is great to have you on the team. We met Brian when he was at Union Square Ventures, so a while back. Then he went out and did great work at two awesome tech companies, and, and now he's on our team. Yeah. It's funny how the world works like that. Absolutely. I feel like I could ask you a million questions about Apple, but I know Nabil had a question. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll kick it off. We had a bunch of stuff we want to talk about today, but the first question, it, it feels like the conversation in tech is that Google is really good at services and Apple's really good at hardware, but really bad at software services. And it's something that I've actually talked about with Bijan a little bit before. I don't necessarily agree. And as somebody who just worked on product that I messaged, like, how do you feel about that sentiment? Yeah, I think when you look at Apple, it's really the combination of things like hardware, software, and services that really make it special. And there are services like iMessage that we sometimes overlook because they're such core utilities and parts of the phone. It's a product that's used by many people around the world. It, it, it's always up. It's fast. It's quick. High quality. And so I, I do think sometimes that's a misnomer that people pass around. But I'm curious, like, what do you guys think? You know, what's your experience with Apple services? Yeah, Nabil. Well, I'm a fanboy, so I'll just put it right out there. <laughs> Clearly, I am too. It's not lost on me that I think Google shut down six different social networks at this point and five different messaging platforms. And I'm currently in the midst of them jamming Google Hangouts into every possible surface area of every Google product, which is what you do when you don't have a product that everybody's naturally picking. And that tells me something. I think that Apple... You, you said like sometimes people take it for granted and sometimes I worry Apple takes it for granted. I guess that's the feeling you get as a consumer. Like they're always really, really well polished. But I think we're used to a cadence sometimes in software where you also get the crazy edgy bits where uh, new shiny stuff ships a lot. And we're almost used to it feeling like a service. Like it's a new month, it's a new quarter, there should be some new feature. It doesn't seem like that's the way that Apple thinks about software. I think the biggest thing is you have to recognize a lot of it is a function of the development cycle. And so with Apple and its history, with a focus on hardware and kind of a focus on the operating system level of software, the way products and features are delivered is, is largely through a once a year major software release. And so a lot of the time is actually around polishing the release so that everything works really well in concert together and building a platform that's like steady and strong for third-party app developers to be able to rely on. But there are teams that are moving to new models where you see that happening across the company. Look at things like Apple TV Plus or Apple Music. They're having slightly faster cadences than other products historically have within software at Apple. It is a different mindset. I think Google's willingness and comfort in experimenting out loud is clearly not Apple's move. And it's like double-edged sword. It wouldn't be surprised me if in a year from now, Google Photos gets torn up or they introduce another thing like that competes with Google Photos. Like you can imagine that 
Yeah, you could certainly imagine Google having three internal teams releasing three different photos products that all compete with each other. And that would never happen in Apple. I, I like our partner, Kevin, talks about there's no one way to build a corporate culture and that there's like a Google way and an Apple way and a Facebook way. And none of those are, it's not that one is right. It's just they're different paths. I don't think I would have in 2021, 2022, say... The way that this software company should go to market is to think about it in an annual release cycle. I think that's a a pretty mind-blowing thing for a CEO to internalize as possible as at a startup, probably not a very early stage startup where you're still trying to find product market fit, but for a later stage startup, that that's even viable, that that's even possible to do. And you get different software out of that cycle. Now, we we would focus a lot on maybe the negatives of speed, but you get thoughtfulness and long-term thinking that you just wouldn't get out of, I don't know, a release, a sprint every two weeks, continuous deployment, all the things that have been more of a trend over the last 10 years. It's been interesting to me to see, there's a couple experiments I've seen online where there are these ideas of chipping features in seasons. And so it's almost, think about a television show where they're putting together over eight to 12 weeks, something that's thematically related to each other. And then moving from that season to a different season going forward. I do actually wonder if we'll see new release models for companies and things coming out. Because I think the benefit of say an annual release cycle or something that's a little bit more predictable is that your users can know what to expect that's coming. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I find that the experimentation of companies like Google can just feel so random and that randomness can be hard to process at times. But maybe knowing that we're focusing on X set of problems this year and whatever could actually make something a bit more compelling. Yeah, in in games, they went through the service architecture as well, and they've evolved to the chapter system, the season system as well. I, I love looking at games because it's such a red ocean. There's so many games and there's so many people making games for completely uneconomic reasons that it's so competitive that you usually at the forefront of... AI and computer graphics and human behavior and like a whole bunch of things. And yeah, games have started to do this over the last three or four years. Fortnite will have a chapter season. You buy a chapter pass for a quarter and you know that once a quarter, there's going to be a big release and usually a thematic change that happens both on the narrative side. But then that's also when you get correlated things that change about the design. And it gives you an arc where you get a height of excitement and then it lowers down again. And every company is trying to do this with their users anyway. They're trying to say there's better things to come. There's be here for the journey. And and there's but very few adapt to what you're talking about, Brian, and maybe more should. In startup land, it's a bit of an impossibility given the thing that makes startups special. You you just have a forced constraint called limited runway. And everything kind of like self-organizes around that because you have to focus in a world where you have 18 months of cash by design. Clearly, frontier tech and life sciences have a different set of constraints or objectives, but I guess I was thinking more around internet services and consumer products that we're familiar with. And as a startup, you have agility and large companies have raw speed. You're the little speedboat moving around and they're the large barge that has a a higher max velocity. I think there's also a difference between product releases and the kind of bleeding edge of product market fit or growth in the company. And so you have to move quickly, but even take a company like, like we were just talking about Descript, like even take a company like Descript and it's still a startup, large parts of that company that are still being figured out. It's still trying to grow, lots of iteration. But there's also software releases. There's feature updates. There's big chunks of the software that need to get released. And you could think about 
any software company almost breaks up into two parts over time. There's a kind of iterating to make fixed product market fit, grow the company. And then there's like feature releases, maintenance, bug fixes, the stuff where you're trying to talk to your customers about the new stuff that's coming out. It'd, it'd be interesting to see if, I don't think we're talking about a Series A company, but a little bit after that, whether they might be able to experiment with it. Hey, so you mentioned games earlier. Brian, you got a new game system, right? Yeah, I am um, one of the few who've gotten a PS5. And I've been wow, playing nice. it a decent amount. Yeah, it definitely got me through the last few months. What about you guys? Have you tried any of the new next-gen systems? Bijan? I have not. I have not. I'm not a big gamer. I, the only exposure I've got to it is uh, my son's got a Windows machine on our network. It's like the only one. And uh, he built this <laughs> PC about a year and a half ago. And he loves it. That's like his main squeeze. But otherwise, that's all we got. Yeah, my, my son built a PC over COVID as well. And I talked to him about whether he cared about the new Xbox it's interesting. He felt, given that there's an Xbox app on the Microsoft platform as well, it really took away his desire to get an Xbox. He obviously doesn't feel the same way about PlayStation, but he was completely underwhelmed. And I'm completely underwhelmed by the launch content for PS5. A bunch of launch titles, partly because of COVID, just all got pushed back. And so there's just not a lot of new content. Like, Brian, I'm curious, what are you playing on the PS5? Yes, I'm definitely one of those gamers. I find video gaming as comfort. And I actually fall on the spectrum as more of a single player gamer, I'd say, more offline modes. And so for me, I really enjoyed the new Spider-Man Miles Morales. Part of it, I think, is actually just the allure of being outside and like an expansive world and being on the streets with the people. For some reason, that game has been really great to me. And then I also love sports games like NBA 2K21 and FIFA. And so I've been getting back in some of those classics. Yeah. What about you guys? Any games you're playing? Early in COVID, like I feel like April, May, June, I have a set of friends that will know exactly what I'm talking about. Like Red Dead Redemption 2 absolutely got me through that period of COVID for exactly the same reason. Just these gorgeous vistas, uh, feels like a living world. You're wandering into these towns and talking to random people, although that is online. Yeah, it helped with the claustrophobia for sure. I almost always play online. I understand the comfort when you speak to that emotion. But for me, it's about connecting with people. For me, it is similar to the bar or the dinner party. And so it was Red Dead for a while, and I had a crew that we were running around. We we're terrible at the game, but just enjoying our time yeah. together. It was like as much fun just sitting on horseback, riding around, talking about our own lives as it was anything else. Is much like food in a restaurant is just a venue to, to start to talk. The game was that for me. Right now, I'm playing a game called Deep Rock Galactic, which is on the Xbox. It's on PC as well and Steam. It's a four-player co-op game where four people go on mining missions together and you're mm. fighting aliens and trying to mine rocks. It's not an amazing game. That's not the important thing. It's just, again, it's a simple, easy to pick up. Like my dad can play it and my son can play it. And we're working together versus competitively. And that's a big thing I found is lacking in gaming. There's not a lot of good co-op games. A lot of people don't like to play online PvP because they're you know tired of getting stomped in the face. I'm on a constant search uh, for good co-op games. And more importantly, for tools that help you find friends that like those co-op games. Like that's such a different thing than social networks, right? Social networks, like everybody gathers into Twitter, everybody gathers into Clubhouse and they're these you know massive ecosystems. The problem with multiplayer games is I got two friends that are playing Fortnite a bunch. They don't want to come over and play Red Dead. Then 
I want to go play deep rock for a little bit. And it's, it's just very bifurcated, which is an interesting problem. Nobody's quite solved yet. Maybe the next hallway chat, we should play a cooperative game together. I was just thinking the same thing. It could be fun. We could live stream it. I think there's, you hear these stories of younger boys and younger men not communicating through the phone anymore. Like the means of communication is actually through voice chat on while playing video games. And it's actually a really powerful thing because it's creating a world where we're more connected and we're having these conversations and relationships to each other. And if gaming can be a conduit for that, I think it's a really powerful kind of means. And is it really that gender skewed? That I don't know. Okay. It's, it's majority male, but more mixed than you believe, obviously, and depending yeah. on games. And I think much like we've seen across a lot of software and services, the demographics have changed really drastically in the last year. And the yeah. online platforms that we're looking at, the number of females and the number of people in their 30s and 40s that have, that have been gaming over the last year has spiked a lot. And yeah. for obvious reasons. It's not in the world that you both are talking about, but we totally had a blast. I would say the middle chunk of 2020 in like when got a real kind of sobriety around the impact of this pandemic, we were just really thriving with Among Us as a family. And and it was the same. When I hear the way you're describing it, it, it ticked all the same boxes, really. It, it had nothing to do with pulling down the lever and watching the leaves come down. It was, we're uh, hanging out. Yeah, you're hanging out together online. But it's very interesting. It's a great way to segue into talking about the creator class because Among Us was a dead game. It had been out for two plus years and a collection of creators on Twitch basically made that game. They started playing it. They started playing it together and obviously unleashed it upon the world, became an absolute phenomenon. And they just did it again this last month. A whole bunch of creators all banded together and started playing a game called Rust, which I don't know if you two have played. It's actually a pretty terrible game to play on your own, to be perfectly honest. Very hardcore PvP. Everybody's just chopping each other up. And it's not actually great. But in the environment of uh, similar to the conversation about Among Us or Deep Rock Galactic or when it's a bunch of friends playing on a server together, it's an entirely different texture of a game. Is it a PC game? PC game. Maybe they're next. It's kind of a survivor horror game. You you land on an island, you're naked, and you're trying to get rocks and food before you die. It's my son describes it as super hardcore, hyper realistic Minecraft. It's again been out for five or six or seven years. It was the interaction between those streamers with each other. It was the relationships. We were there for the relationships all along anyway. What is it? Is it a specific creator or getting that first, you know, big game back? Do we have any sense of like how that happens? Or is it really just a, a small collective of people who were in the games kickstarted? Was there one person that we can originate this to? I don't know the provenance. I think there was one person in the Rust server. I don't know the provenance on Among Us. I think the really hard thing about social games, just like any social network, is that you don't want to be on the one that your friends aren't on. Sure. And so there is a cold start, really bad cold start problem that nobody's quite cracked and it feels like there's probably some horizontal service that could help solve this problem which is that if you have a new game and it's amazing no one will want to play it because they're all playing among us and they're not sure if their other friends will want to play it and there's just like tipping point you want to get over where suddenly you're in late majority of users being okay to use it i'm now uh clicking around trying to find a ps5 so i need to get like less distracted now but i'm going to try to have some news for the next podcast Tricks. I think I need less YouTube in my life and more PS5 is where I'm netting out as we're talking. Yeah. You need to get on the PC bandwagon, man. 
Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't do it. I know. Can't um, do it. Yeah, there's no space for a PC right now. Hey, I, I wanted to bring up something. I don't, speaking of creators, I know we, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but I don't know if you all read Lee Jin's article about the creator economy needing a middle class. Have either of you, uh, Brian, did you get a chance to read that? Yeah, I, I've checked it out. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I only read it, it just moments ago when you posted it. You want to you wanna talk about it? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I was part of a Zoom book group kind of thing where we actually, we, Lee talked a little bit more in depth about it. It's a great article. I recommend everybody everybody reading it. The basic premise is in the title, which is how do we build a middle class? For all these conversations about these creators propping up among us and so on, there's a stat 2% of the people on Patreon are earning the federal minimum wage. We, we know it's a very top heavy in terms of earnings. David Dubrick's YouTube channel, I think he makes $275,000 a month in AdSense. But we all know if like we started a YouTube channel next month, like it's probably not how we're going to quit our day jobs. And so how do you build a, a thriving middle class? That's the core of any good economy is this kind of like upward mobility and make it a little bit less of a lottery. Her, her answer was really to try and look at other federal economies to try and say, when we had a thriving middle class in America, what were we doing? And is there a way to build a social network or an influencer platform where some of those things are happening? There is an interesting point she calls out, which I'm actually looking at the article now, which is basically suggesting that inequality is somewhat inherent in the nature of the passion economy, right? Because at some level, supply is heterogeneous and non-substitutable, right? And so one creator can't be fully substituted by a different creator because they're creating unique and interesting content. And at some level, that trust and affinity that comes from a really good creator, like we should celebrate that. So I do think it's interesting in thinking about a middle class. It's we have to think of a world that does also celebrate the long tail. Some of the strategies just for the listeners, if you're curious, are some thoughts looking at like ways you can foster a creator middle class using product, thinking about new distribution models funding creators, thinking about how you monetize in a way that supports them, and also providing education and training. One of the ones that I think is pretty interesting, which is around focusing on content type, things with lower replay value. So a song you can hear over and over again. And so the best musicians are going to have this dynamic where they might become really popular. But in say a podcast, there's low repeatability and listening to it. You probably won't listen to this episode twice. And I think that's an interesting way of content that's more unique is more likely to maybe create dynamics where more people can play. What, what do y'all think? It's yeah. like the opposite of what we want in a startup. We're like more scalable product, less services. But from a creator standpoint or from wanting there to be a solid middle class, you want the opposite. You, in many ways, it's like you want online services, less product. You want, don't want the thing that gets replicated for free 20 billion times. You want the thing that's uniquely you and you can only do once, maybe even just one-on-one or one-to-many. The middle class didn't didn't happen naturally, right? It was born of really strong 20th century economic policies that created that prosperity. It was like, I don't know, like the New Deal, the Fair Labor Standards Act, minimum establishing minimum wages and labor practices. Basically, Unions, basically mild levels of socialism to allow the, the bottom to be lifted up because we realized that the economy was not defined by who the richest person was, but what the medium income was. And it's worth thinking about any ecosystem. If you keep calling this a creative economy, it's worth thinking about any economy that way. Like you're defined by your median, not by your max. And so we all want to get to the point where if you're running a creative economy platform, if you're running Substack or anything else, you want to be able to say, 
here's the first person that made $500,000 on this platform, a million dollars on this platform, but that's not a healthy ecosystem, right? That's a PR release and a milestone. The question is, if I'm getting started here, am I getting the support in order to be able to make a living wage? Yeah, you can imagine what the income distribution curve looks like on YouTube as one proxy. MKBHD is making serious bank and everybody else. So I'm exaggerating to make a point. I wonder also, and this isn't meant to be cynical, it's more of, of a question of like creators on Shopify, small businesses, creators on Shopify and Etsy and other places that are really broken out as meaningful consumer destinations. Do you think this is like a replacement? For an expansion of a middle-class kind of roadmap, or is this a, a zero-sum swap out that those creators would have been doing something else at a similar place in time? Is this their path to economic stability, independence, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's, when I think about articles like this one, they tend to be thinking about the digital creator economy people that are creating digital content and that being the means to creating a living using these platforms. But you can think about it a little bit more broadly when you're folding in people that are building physical products and selling those on platforms like Shopify and Etsy. Maybe one of the places where these two ideas come together is we are seeing quote unquote influencers and brands selling physical products as like a way to bring income in. And maybe that, you know, could be a tactic to help bolster a more dynamic middle class on some of these platforms. Thought. Could be. All of this is really the long tail atomization of products and services, right? It, eventually it boils down to single human with an Etsy store or with a podcast or with a Substack or hosting on Clubhouse or with a Discord server, really pushing out the things that they create in the world, whatever that is. I wonder if, is that a permanent long-term trend that we just get atomization? Or is it more like what we see in the media landscape where we get the bundling and unbundling over time? Do we get everybody starting a Substack newsletter so that next year, a handful of them gather together and they start a publication like The Athletic does for, for their particular vertical that they care about and say, just subscribe here once and we'll give you all the good people and all the rest of it. Is that... What do you think, Bashan? I don't know. It's... it's I love the idea of somebody can just write to the internet and have a core group of users. If I could do it all over again today, not that I can't, but like I, I would have preferred having a Substack than my own blog, like for sure. I don't know why I haven't made the change. I do think there's a, a desire, I think for sometimes for us to figure it out that like, how does this scale for everybody? And I don't think everybody has the same needs. Like I'm not looking to monetize my blog, whereas some people that would be like their living. And I think the same thing is probably true on all these forms of these creative platforms. Like, I, I don't think there's this monolithic requirement for the whole thing. You know what I mean? I just got out of a meeting with somebody that said Twitter users with big followers should have to pay Twitter to reach their audience is what this person was trying to tell me. And that it's crazy that Twitter allows somebody with 2 million followers to blast out messages for free. Like that seems to be backwards. And I, I can make the opposite argument. And I, I guess, sorry if I'm straying off topic here, but I have a hard time getting my head around whether these things have to monetize in a way for everybody with, because I don't think everyone has the same goals. Does that make any sense? I think that makes sense. But Bijan, I'm actually curious. You talked about maybe going to Substack today versus your own blog. 
what was the purpose of the blog? Was it to share ideas? Was it a dialogue between you and the readers? Like, how have you thought about that kind of? Yes, all the above. It was a place to like, just have a public journal and connect with other people that were doing the same thing. That was the original, original. And then obviously I met Carp and moved over and all that stuff. But it was, it was connecting with others on the internet. Why did you stop blogging? You had a great blog. Uh, that's how I met you. I met you through the blog. And that's how I learned about Spark to start with. Insane. Vice versa. I, I, I yeah, very I, clearly I, remember your blog. I stopped because I felt I became very, what's the word? It's not self-aware. I just got very turned off by a lot of what I, I felt was like content marketing with people in this in our industry that suddenly I'm like a VC with a blog as opposed to just a human writing on the internet. And so I I stopped writing about startups and just started posting about music and photos, which I love. It's not contrived. It just got this uh, negative energy about writing about the profession of what I love, which is startups. But I just felt, I just had an allergic reaction, I guess is the God's honest truth. (laughs) It's interesting you bring that up because, you know, as we talked about earlier, I'm back into venture capital after being away for a few years. And one of the things I've been thinking about is how do I talk about share ideas on the internet today? Because it does feel like our industry has changed a lot. In my view, it's over the last six to eight years. I have this severe allergic reaction to posting on about work on Twitter because it feels like VC Twitter is very contrived almost in a way. And so I've been thinking about what is the next version of the blog right? This idea of getting your ideas out and connecting with like-minded people about things. And I've been thinking about things like maybe it's a Telegram channel. Maybe it's actually a Discord server with a curated group of people and we're just sharing ideas together and we're publishing original thoughts, but it's more of a place for discourse as opposed to a place for marketing and branding our firm. I've struggled with this a lot. We've talked about this a little bit, Brian, already offline. And I... I think, for instance, like starting a Substack is about the last thing I would possibly do because that's really clearly a a, a newsletter yeah. where I'm putting together my quote unquote thoughts on the industry, which is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in a dialogue with founders and investors and the people that have the ideas and, and working through the ideas with them, being a part of that community. And a newsletter feels j- pretty far away from that. Twitter, I generally think of it as a conversation. So I'll do a lot more replying to threads that I think are interesting and just talking to the people I want to talk to than I do. That's, I think, how I internalize being authentic in that medium, which is I'm not, I hesitate to make an original post that says, here's my crazy new idea for the week that you should be thinking about. And instead, I just, look, I have friends on Twitter. I'm going to reply to them. Sometimes that's about startups. Sometimes that's about politics or photos or whatever. And that's how I, that's how it feels native to me. The sad part of what, what you say, Bijan, is I, I certainly feel the way you do that over the last five or six years, people have started to think about writing on the internet, uh, rightfully so, as content marketing. It is content marketing, but it, that also makes it very inauthentic. And that's different than just writing on the internet. Like just, I want to connect with people on the internet. And I don't know that there's a great place for that right now. I think Clubhouse is a place that I find feels like that. I think audio and live, it's the same reason we do this podcast live. It feels we're just chatting together and it feels a lot more conversation, a lot more authentic than it is if I sent you five topics to write 
about tomorrow, Bijan. <laughs> that would feel not good. I, 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 so maybe a Discord server is also a good idea, Brian. Maybe just grabbing 15, 20 like-minded people who are thinking about similar topics is the right way to go. I worry about Telegram and WhatsApp groups and those kinds of affordances, which is where a lot of these conversations are going, by the way. A lot of what's happening, and I'm in several of these groups. What I don't like about that is they create these crystal cities with yeah. high walls that nobody else can get into. And what I love about the internet is that act of being alone on an island with an idea, pushing it out into a blog, and then realizing there's five people you've never seen before that also care about this thing too, and then meeting those people and, and learning yeah, more. The, and you don't get the, that in a close group. Yeah, these new connections, I don't think get... That, that, that interaction model is not the same in a WhatsApp group. Like it just, you're not going to make a new friend contact, whatever in a, in any, with any real velocity, like we do on the open internet. I'm calling Twitter the open internet because it's not these closed <laughs> off rooms, but I, I, there's, there was a while, there was a while where I was participating in a number of group DMS on Twitter. And I thought maybe that's the future of it, but I, I, I felt the same way you did. I felt like it was like, I was like in this closed off bubble. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think what we're talking about is, the ideas being out in public is actually where the magic happens. Yeah. People being able to communicate and, and leave comments on it. Like that's where the real discourse happens. So yeah. That's a good point. But maybe I'll write some more. If I, if you see me writing a top 10 list, then send me a DM and say, get that post off the internet. Yeah. The, again, the irony of it all, Bijan, is, is the world needs more authenticity, right? Like <laughs> you've had great experiences in this industry. Brian, you're going to go through this incredible journey the next couple of years. I'm sure there are other people that will relate to that and learn from that and empathize with you and you can empathize with them, but not if you don't find a venue. And that, that's the challenge I think in today's internet is parts of it have become so red ocean that they've been productized. And so like you, you write the top 10 list, it's every week, this is what you do. Like here's a guide on how you do your content marketing and we can all feel that. And I think we're just blue ocean people. We like the wandering a little bit in the dark. We're still trying to figure it out. And I think that's the tension. Hey, speaking of blog posts, I had this idea for a blog post, but I'd, I think I'd rather riff about it here. I interviewed a guy for the growth team, nice guy. And I asked him, how did he get conviction on this investment? And that investment answer was bulletproof. Awesome. Way better than I could have thought about it. And then I said, hey, tell me about an investment that went wrong. Like you, know, you, you put the money in and just all your thinking behind it was, what'd you get wrong? And he goes, I, I haven't been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. And it wasn't uh, defensive. It wasn't arrogant. It was the reality that he's been a growth investor in the last three or four years and hasn't seen it. Like Everything's just, up uh, under the right. Everything's gone up to the right. And clearly a lot of VCs have had a number of exits. We've had a, a number of exits. It's, the world is upside down, but in tech land, like there's a lot of things happening that are, are successful. But it, what it does highlight is there's a cohort of VCs that have never seen the great recession movie of 2009. Just like there's a lot of entrepreneurs that didn't know world before the app store. And I'm 51. So I've seen now I've seen two bad recessions and in, in tech world. And anyway, I, I thought it's a mixed bag. If you've never seen a recession, it's a really, it's probably liberating to be fearless. And yeah, well, on the let's other focus hand, on the positive side, right? Yeah. You know, what, what, your 1998 version of Bijan where everything is up into the right and feeling great. Wasn't that freeing? It, no it fear. Freeing. Yeah. I, I'll give you an example. The two startups 
in, in the nineties that I was involved with, not to belabor it, but just to talk about it, the naivete made startup one work great. And it was looking back, it, it, it shouldn't have worked and it worked a kind of thing. The second one though, was the most extreme thing imaginable, it raised a ton of money and spent a ton of money. And then the world ended and we could talk about that another time, but I guess I wonder what it'd be like to be in this business and not having gone there. Because when I got into this, the VC business, we launched Spark in 06. I had at least seen one of these things. In fact, uh, the thing that informed Spark was that most investors didn't want to do consumer because they got their ass kicked the last time around a consumer. And we were like, that's what we like. Let's go do it. And the, the baggage of the first crash was like part of the genesis story of the business. And I wonder how much of that is going to have any relationship to this next gen of new investor. I don't know. You know. Brian, you've been an investor only in uptimes. So how does it feel to be an investor only in uptimes? The part that's hard to disconnect is at some level, this mentality of software is eating the world. And in so many different areas, opportunity for things to change. And even though everything has been up, it does seem like there's been like the sector by sector approach of things that are really working at a given time. I think back around social media products from 2007 to 2011, even more recently, it seems like FinTech is really going through a moment of being digitized and more connected to the internet. And so I don't really see that stopping anytime soon. I know traditional knowledge would say there's going to be a market correction, but I do wonder how much more headroom do we have? But I'm, I'm curious, you both had much longer careers than I have. Is it, is that naive? Is, is that simple-minded to think that way? It's easy to say that there's going to be a correction and there probably will be. I'm in this industry because I care about startups and I care about new ideas getting started. I'm all for irrational exuberance. I, I get that people are going to lose money along the way and I get that uh, it will end at some point. Uh, I think there's absolutely companies that will also raise too much money and they'll be full grad to the point of dying. So we should talk about that because that's really the negative part is the capital coming into companies when they really um, sometimes yeah. really shouldn't have it in them. But in terms of venture capital and startups, if you are a VC who everything you've invested in is now going up under the right because you happen to be, and by the way, that's usually true in growth. In early stage, there's still sure, sure, sure. lots of stuff not working this, out. This was a growth uh, investor. Lots and lots of stuff not working out. But let's assume that on par, your companies you're working with are doing better than they would otherwise because the market is doing really well. So even a slightly mediocre company is still getting markups. You still feel good about yourself, blah, blah, blah. Everything's going to be okay. Great. In a way, like, great. The last time I raised venture capital was during a little bit of a downturn as a CEO. Yeah. And what I felt speaking to VCs then was that they were all full of fear and they were all scared. Yeah. That they were all just, they just wanted to return 1x on their fund. So maybe they would be given another card to turn over yeah, yeah. in order to keep doing this job a little bit longer. Yeah, That's the flip side that is really bad because that world means they're not willing to take risk. And then they're just making conservative bets on boring crap that I really don't care about in the first place. And so I, I would much rather a world where people felt a pronation towards risk and a pronation towards innovation and being okay with a miss or two and looking at a company and saying, hey, everything else is doing pretty well. So I'll, this one might be a zero actually, but I'm okay with that. I think the really hard downside to this though is I don't know how you convince a founder 
not to take the extra 30 or 40 or $50 million of growth capital when some growth investor comes calling. And sometimes it's the best thing for the company, especially for a capital intensive business. But overfunding a company is often, especially early, is just a death nail. It can absolutely kill a business. Yeah. Sometimes it makes a company, sometimes it kills it. And by the way, I'm all for I think you called it irrational exuberance. I think it's a great phrase that is, is talked about because if you didn't have that, so many things wouldn't have been invented. So like I, on a broad-based matter, I, I completely agree. I think the, and I also, Joe Cutler likes to say, you should only be in this business if you think tomorrow is better than yesterday because that like we're all about like, you have to have this optimism. Otherwise, like what's the point? <laughs> yeah. The only thing I found interesting about this last discussion is just that if you've never had, if you never touched a hot stove, like never, you know, are you going to be the best partner to an entrepreneur? Not whether your portfolio is going to work out. Like in a world where you can have a bunch of losses and a couple outsized amazing companies, like that pencils out. You may have done a lot of harm to six other founders in your life or something like that. I'm not trying to, I'm not wagging my finger and saying the next cohort is fucked because they've never seen a bad movie. It's more of just, it's an interesting moment because this bull run has gone on longer as far as I remember than any other prior bull run. So we're, there's no prior art for this situation, I think. Even with a pandemic, we're having like all the, this industry is on fire. So it's well, that's because we are in a zero interest rate environment and, and that yes. will last for the next couple of years. Yes. And so yes. the public 100%. markets have to chase growth, whatever it is. I think you bring up a really good point that there's a bunch of investors that don't know how to behave when a company is failing. And I really hope they don't panic. Hopefully, they're parts of firms that are teaching them how to behave in those worlds, that when they go ask a mentor or a, a, par a partner, what am I going to do this thing's upside down, that those people give them good counsel, that they stick by those founders and they help to keep the team through the downsides. I do worry about the teams inside of those growth companies. If they haven't been through a shock to the system or two, forget the investors. Have the teams themselves built the kind of metal that they will need to get through an inevitable shock and inevitable downturn that will happen along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I learned a lot from other VCs that were, you know, older than me and saw how they conducted themselves. First of all, I learned a lot on what I didn't want to replicate. And then I had the good fortune. I, I sat on a number of boards with Brad Burnham and Fred Wilson, who were the next generation ahead of me. And I saw them as role models, frankly, on how to deal with companies that were struggling and doing great and see it. It wasn't all up and to the right. And it was, it was really impactful. Same. And I think I'm lucky to have folks like you guys yeah. and also the team <laughs> right, at USD. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I think for me, though, as someone who's new and in this world, I think you speak a good point around having mentors. I think there's also just like a level of humility that you need in this context where you're right. You don't want to work with people who have only seen wins and don't know how to behave when things go bad. And, and so you want people that can empathize and understand that like the time that we're in is not going to be so fruitful forever. So yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. I actually, I, I prefer this conversation than like me grinding it out with a keyboard and trying to think about a blog post that may be misinterpreted. So this is better. I like this better. <laughs> that's a good place to finish on because maybe that's an indication that we should do this more often. Yeah, we're totally back. <laughs> you, you can expect we're the podcast from us on schedule now. <laughs> Every week. Or at uh, least no, we appreciate those that year. listen to our, our ramblings here. It's fun. It's fun for us. I think let's do more of these. I'm making myself an unofficial member of the group. Just putting it out there. <laughs>
you're in. But maybe we can experiment with different formats as well. Maybe we can go live or bring people in. Ooh, live would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, let's get crazy. <laughs> See, bringing the new energy already. I love yeah. it. I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> All right, I think cool. that's a wrap. Good chatting with you guys. As always, everybody, if you got any comments, if you have a topic you want to hear covered, let us know. Thanks so much. Yeah. Hey, Brian, what's your handle on Twitter? B Watts. B Watts. W A T S. All right. Excellent. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. All right. See uh, everyone. Bye.